Let's pray first. Father, I just invite your presence. Speak through us, to us through your word. God, I pray you would anoint my lips to share what you would want me to share this morning. God, that anything that's not of you would fall to the ground and be harmless. Lord, I thank you for your word, which is truth that encourages us and builds us up. God, your word declares that it's a tutor for us to live our lives. So we give this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start by sharing with you a story. It's a legendary story. It's about marriage on the island of Oahu in the state of Hawaii. And legend has it, years ago, it was very customary to offer a dowry to the father of the bride. And at that particular time, the custom was that you brought cows to the father of the bride. And the going rate at that time was three cows. Sorry, ladies. Three cows was the going rate. And if there was this amazing young lady, four cows would sometimes be offered. And rumor had it, no one had been able to substantiate it and find the person who did it, but rumor had it that there once was a bride that a guy brought five cows as his dowry. Well, there was a man by the name of Sam Carroll, and he had two daughters. And in Sam's own eyes and in the eyes of the villagers, his eldest daughter wasn't act, actually a looker. And Sam had pretty well given up hope that he was going to get three cows for his oldest daughter. But he'd settled in his heart, hey, if I can get two cows, that'd be just fine. Well, and if I only get one, I'll take it. Matter of fact, he had even settled in his own heart that if I just find somebody that would like my daughter to be their wife, I'll give them to her to just kind of relieve my financial burden. He didn't have very many hopes, very high hopes for his eldest daughter. But to balance that out, he was confident that his younger daughter, she was a three cowgirl if there ever was one. As a matter of fact, he thought four cows wouldn't be unreasonable. And when he'd look at her and his imagination would go wild, he says, if that rumor is true and there ever was a five cowgirl, this could be the one. Balance things out a little bit. Well, then he heard through the villagers that Johnny Lingo, the richest man on the island of Oahu, was coming to visit Sam. And everybody knew he was coming for a bride. And Sam thought, wow, this could be really good. And everybody, including Sam, just assumed he was coming for the younger daughter. And Sam was starting to see his cowherd grow in his mind. You can imagine the surprise and the shock when the suitor came for the older daughter. Sam was shocked, but in his own mind he thought, hey, I may get three after all. He's loaded. Maybe four. Five cows might not even mean anything to this guy. The villagers and Sam were absolutely shocked astounded when Johnny Lingo came for the eldest daughter and he was bringing ten cows with him for the eldest daughter. So Johnny took his eldest, the eldest daughter and they got married and they went away on a long honeymoon, two years honeymoon. And when they came back, Sam was shocked 
He didn't hardly recognize his daughter. The villagers were astounded. Could this possibly be the eldest daughter? Those who had thought he was nuts for giving ten cows for the eldest daughter were now saying, boy, did he ever get his money worth? Her appearance, she was beautiful. She was graceful. She was poised. She was very self-assured. Her inner beauty had radiated to the outer view. Johnny had looked at the eldest daughter differently than even the father had looked at her. He certainly looked at her differently than the villagers had looked at her. Johnny saw past the outward appearances and he saw the heart of this woman. And when Johnny gave the father ten cows, the eldest daughter became a ten-cow wife. In our story today, we're going to see something similar take place in the life of a young boy named David. Outwardly, not too impressive. God sees things differently. If you recall, last week we talked about Israel historically at this time. It was that time of the judges. Time when the people were constantly abandoning God, worshiping idols, sinful lifestyles. And then they started calling out for a king. And Samuel, who was the prophet that time, the voice of God at that time, had warned the people, no, you don't want a king. God is our king. And the people said, no, we want a king because we want to be like everybody else. And then it tells us that God gave them a king like they wanted. And it's interesting, it's said that way, that God gives them a king like they desired, and yet God is the one who chose the king. He could see the hearts of the people. And the guy he picked was Saul. King Saul. And I don't know what their infatuation with was tall people, but it said he was tall. He was stood a head and shoulders above all the rest of the people. He was a handsome, good-looking, muscular-looking. There's a man who could be king. God gave the people what they wanted. They could say, you know what? We don't have to take a backseat to any other nation. Look at our king. He's impressive. We'll put him up against your king anytime. But God knew the people's hearts and he also knew Saul's heart because he gave them a king like they wanted. They didn't want a king like God. They were in effect rejecting God as their king, crying out for this man to be king. And at this time, Samuel Samuel is beside himself, wondering, Saul, what are you thinking? He started out so well. He started out well. He had some victories. He was obedient to God. He sought God. And then things started to change. External circumstances started to to stir up some emotions in him. Fear settled in to his heart. Maybe a little overconfidence and cockiness. Impatience settled in. All of a sudden, he's waiting for Samuel the priest to come and he decides he's late, so he becomes the priest. Bad idea. God had not declared him a priest. He quit seeking God before they would go into battle. Bad idea. They even lost the ark, the presence of God. And Saul finally comes comes to a point where Samuel has to come to him. The prophet of God, the voice of God comes to him. 
And he tells Saul, God has rejected you as king. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, there's some really horrifying words that I would never want to hear. I would never want to hear them personally. I'd never want to hear them about our church. Saul comes and he says, Now the Spirit of the Lord... Samuel comes and to Saul, it's now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. The Spirit of the Lord leaves. All that's left is Saul. And he's an utter failure. And in 1 Samuel 13, 14, it says, The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. That's what God wanted. He would give them a king, but he wanted a man after God's own heart. He had told them, as long as the king obeys me, follows me, seeks me, stays away from idolatry, and as long as you as a people do the same, as long as you follow the representation of the man I give you as a king, and he's on the right track, I'll bless you. But he didn't. And the cycle started all over again of turning away from God. And it broke Samuel's heart. He cared for Saul. He loved Saul. He was anointed to be king. And here he turned away. And now the Spirit of God had departed from him. And Saul is actually in a, in a kind of grieving state. And then the Lord speaks to him. And in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, it says this, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel. It's like, get over it, Saul. He blew it. You're my voice piece. And he says, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. Now that seems like a weird thing to say to us maybe, but he's the prophet and the priest and he's to go and he's take oil. So he says, fill that horn with the anointing oil. And then he says, I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So Saul, in obedience, fills his horn with oil. And he travels to Bethlehem. And he comes to Jesse and he says, Jesse, I want you to get your sons and I want you to consecrate yourselves and we're going to go and sacrifice and I want you to come with me. And then here's what it says in 1 Samuel, starting at verse 6. It won't be on the screen. You can just listen or follow along in your Bibles. And it says, when they all arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. He was the oldest son. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Here even Samuel, his mind was falling into that same trap that the people had. Surely this man, this tall, muscular oldest son must be the guy God says no 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 Samuel refocus keep your eye on the ball here let's keep track of what's taking place then Jesse calls Abinadab and has him pass in front of Samuel and Samuel says again the Lord has not chosen this one either 
So Jesse's starting to go down the lineup of all of his sons. And then he gets to Shammah. And Jesse has Shammah pass by, but Samuel says, Nor the Lord has chosen this one. And Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him each time, The Lord has not chosen him. So he looks at Jesse and says, Are these all the sons you have? Samuel is used to hearing the word of the Lord. He knew what the Lord had said to him. But all the sons that Jesse brought with him at Samuel's command to bring him, come with, consecrate yourselves, come and sacrifice with me, and they're out of boys. And he says, are these all the sons you have? And Jesse says, well, they're still the youngest one. You know, Jesse says, I got one more, but. You can just about, but. He's out tending the sheep. That's all he's good for. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. In other words, we aren't going to rest till he gets here. He's on a mission from God. He's got his eye on the ball. I'm supposed to anoint one of your sons as king. And so far, we're 0 for 7. We're not going to rest until you bring him in. And they brought him in. And then it says, he was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. It's interesting. If you study the words in that sentence, it says he's the runt of the litter, but he looked pretty good. Here's the runt. I mean, he's a cute kid and everything, but he's a skinny runt. And what does God do? The Lord says, rise and anoint him. He is the one. God looks on the heart. What was he looking for? He, he was looking for someone who, after, who was after his own heart. And in verse 13 of chapter 16, it says these words, Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. He was anointed. He was consecrated. And from that moment on, he was anointed with power by the Holy Spirit. Now put yourself in David's place. In the natural. The seven older brothers... Eliab, the oldest, the tallest, the strongest, the biggest. They're all standing there and they've been rejected by the prophet of God. And in comes this little runt. I don't know how little he really was. This good-looking young kid who's been out with the sheep. And God anoints him through Samuel as the king. Now, if you were David, wouldn't you be just a little bit like in your face, guys? I'm the one. Or maybe you'd have just said, all right, this is pretty cool. Let's go outside and build me a crown. I'm the king. Matter of fact, let's start practicing. Why don't you all bow before me? What did David do? You know what David did? He went back to the sheep. Kept his eye on the ball. He was called to shepherd his sheep. That's what he did. Amazing to me. What is it that God saw? In David. Well, there's a scripture in Psalms I want to read to you, Psalm 78. And it's making reference to David at this time when God chose him. And it says, He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes and with the suckling lambs, and he brought him to shepherd Jacob and his people, and Israel is in his, his inheritance. 
Shepherd Jacob and his people. Israel is an inheritance, meaning he made him king. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided him with his skillful hands. What was God looking for when he was going to choose the king? He was looking for a man after God's own heart. Notice he wasn't looking for a perfect man. And if you know the story of David, you know he was not a perfect man. But he had the heart of God. He could represent God as the king. David had a heart of integrity. It says he shepherded his flock with a heart of integrity, guided them with his skillful hands. David was fully engaged in caring for his sheep. That's what he was called to do at that time. That was his calling. He was focused. That's what I'm going to do. It was the mission that God had set before him at that particular time in his life. He wasn't out looking for a bigger and more grand mission. He was doing what he was called to do. He was submitted to his father. He was submitted to his father. Take care of the sheep. And boy, did he take care of the sheep. And when he was through being anointed king of Israel, he went back to the sheep. There's a difference between being anointed to be king and being set in as king. David taking care of his sheep, it's some amazing things. If you try to picture these things in your mind, I don't know how your mind works, but I have a hard time getting it. You know, when he protected the sheep, a little later in the story when he's talking to King Saul and this whole David and Goliath thing is going to take place, David says to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, I struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth, and when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. I love putting a picture in my mind of that. There's this bear, this lion. It's got the, got the lamb in its mouth, but it hasn't killed it yet. And David's running after the animal. And he hits it. The animal lets go of the lamb. He protects the lamb. And when the, the bear or the lion comes, what's he do? It's like he just turns around, grabs him by the hair, and belts him one. And it kills him. What's the picture? He put his life at risk for the sheep. He was willing to lay down his life for the sheep. To you and I, it might look like a shepherd taking care of his animals. God looked at him and saw a man of integrity with a heart of integrity taking care of the flock as best he knew how. He was a man after God's own heart. As I read in 1 Samuel 13, the Lord had sought out for himself a man after his own heart and God appointed him to rule over his people. The interesting thing is there's a whole lot of people that didn't see him like that. Starting real close to home. God looked at David and saw the king of Israel, a man of integrity, a man with a right heart, a man who would lay down his life for the sheep, the man who would take the mission that God had put before him, stay focused on it, and do it to the best of his abilities as God would lead him. But in his own house, his dad, his dad didn't see David as a potential king. As a matter of fact, he thought so little of David. What did he do? He just left him out with the sheep. When he knew Samuel the prophet, this famous man of God and all of Israel was coming to his house to anoint one of his boys to be king, he didn't even consider bringing him 
to the event. Samuel even had to ask him, as I just read to you a little while ago, is this all the kids you got? Oh no, we got one more. He's kind of a runt. He's out in the field taking care of the sheep. And I can almost imagine Samuel looking at him and saying, are you kidding me? I'm here to anoint one of your sons as king and you don't even bring them all here? His own father did not see the man that David was. He was focused on the outward appearance. Just like that father in the story I shared to begin with. Focused on the outward appearance, not so much concerned and not seeing what God could see. His own dad. Another one who didn't see it was his older brother. I think we get a real clear picture of Eliab, the older Eliab, the older brother. Remember, when Samuel saw him, he goes, that's got to be the guy. And God said, "Uh uh-uh, that's not the guy. I reject him. Well, a little later in the story, if you, as you read through Samuel, you see his name come up again. We jump ahead to it for a moment. It's at the valley and the mountain where David and Goliath are going to eventually confront one another. You recall, I hope, David, his father calls to him and says, I need you to leave the sheep right now. I need to give you another mission. I've got a job for you. He says, I want you to take some bread and some cheese and I want you to go to the battle lines and, and give these to your brothers and I'd like, kinda, I'd like a news report to see how things are going. So David does exactly what he's told again. God has put a new mission in front of him and he's focused and he's going. And when he gets there, he's talking to some of the other soldiers and it says his brother hears him talking. And here's how Eliab responds. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down to just see the battle. Boy, has that brother got it wrong. Boy, has that brother's heart revealed. We don't have to wonder why God passed him by. He makes a mockery even of David's mission, taking care of the sheep. What are you doing leaving those few mangy sheep and coming out here? Who do you think you are? I know your heart. God has declared, I'm going to search for a man who has a heart after my own heart. And yet his brother says, you're just an insolent, spoiled little brat. What are you doing here? Things weren't going so well in his own family. And by this time, remember, he's been anointed to be king. Eliab was there and witnessed the anointing by Samuel to be king. Well, there's a third person who didn't view David as a future king. And this is King Saul. Now, picture the situation. Israel and the Philistines are at war. Israel's over here on a, they call it a mountain, a tall hill, and the Philistines are over here on a mountain or a tall hill, and down below is a valley. And that's where the battle's going to take place in the valley. Only there's no battle taking place. We know King Saul himself is there. He's got his tent. 
And his army is there. And Eliab, his brother, is there. And his other brothers are there. And over there is the Philistines. And there's no battle taking place. Where's the king? What's he doing? What's Saul doing? He's hiding in his tent. Remember, why did the people want Saul? Because he stood a head and shoulders above the rest and he was a strong guy and he just looked like a king. And he's hiding. And David shows up and he asks the other soldiers, what the heck is going on? Who is this Philistine that's walking down in the valley and bad-mouthing our God? Goliath stood about nine and a half feet tall. And in the story, it gives you the, the weight of his, his sword and the weight of his shield. And it's like, geez, Superman could hardly pick it up. And he's down there and he's smarting off and he's, he's insulting not just Israel, the army. He's insulting the God of Israel. And David sees this and he can't understand, what the heck's going on? What's the deal? And they tell him, well, the king, the king he, he's, he's in the tent and... He'll, he'll give a whole bunch of money and wealth, and he'll even give his daughter to somebody who wants to go kill Goliath. And David, it's almost like he can't understand what the problem is. There's this nine and a half foot giant of a man with a sword so big most people couldn't lift it, and they're all scared to death. And David's like, what's wrong with you? Word gets back to King that this guy named David is there, this young guy named David. And he goes to Saul. He's brought to Saul. Saul takes a look at him. Here's what Saul says. You're not able to go against the Philistine. You can't go fight with him. You're but a youth. Which has been, and this other guy, he's been a warrior from his youth. David didn't see a nine-and-a-half-foot giant, he saw somebody insulting the God of Israel. And now just imagine Saul, if you could for a moment, he's the king. He's supposed to be out there leading his armies into battle. He's the one that's supposed to be God's representative. He's the one that's supposed to be standing up for righteousness and holiness, and he's hiding in the tent. And here comes David. And David says, what's the problem? Saul offers him his armor and his sword, and he says, no thanks, I got my stones. I, I can handle bears and lions. I can handle this guy, no big deal. So far, 0 for 3, they didn't see David as the king. The fourth one I want to mention is the nine and a half foot tall giant. Can you imagine, for days on end, this giant's been walking down there every morning, standing at the bottom of the valley, and he's been insulting him. He'd say, come on, isn't there a man in all of Israel? Isn't there anybody that's going to stand up to me? If you come down here and you defeat me, the Philistine nation will become your servants. But if I defeat your man, you're going to become our servants. What's wrong with you? Your God can't handle our gods. And then here comes David, walking down the valley, walking down the hillside. What's he got? No sword, no armor, no stick. He's got his sling and a few stones. <coughs> and Goliath sees him in 1 Samuel 17, verse 42. Here's what it says. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. 
And the Philistine says to David, and to all of the Israel army hearing, am I a dog that you come to me with a stick? Now wait a minute. What was David carrying? He wasn't carrying a stick. Who's the stick? David. He's looking at this skinny little stick of a guy and he says, you come at me with a stick? What do you think I am? A dog. Those are about the last words he said before he got hit in the forehead with a rock. And David went over and picked up his sword and cut off his head and carried the head back to Saul's tent and said, what's the problem? Let's go kill them all. Can you imagine this? This isn't makeup. This is history. This is the reality. This is what God's servant could do when he was in obedience to God. He was, his eye was on the ball. He was focused on the mission. He was brought there. There's an army. Nobody saw him as a king. They saw him as this little stick of a guy. His dad didn't even respect him. His brother certainly didn't respect him. Saul thought he was sending him out to get butchered. And Goliath, he lost his head in the whole situation. You know, it's interesting. All these people that maybe could have or should have recognized something in David and didn't, there was someone that did. Not God, besides God. Not Samuel, besides Samuel. In 1 Samuel 18, verse 4, Saul had a son named Jonathan. And immediately after David kills Goliath, comes up to Saul's tent carrying a head in his hand, Here's what Jonathan does. Now remember, Jonathan's the prince. He's the king's son. And it says, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, the prince's robe, and he gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. I believe this is very symbolic Jonathan and David became knit together. Jonathan recognized. He was the one who should have followed Saul and became king, but he recognized this young stick of a boy is God's anointed to be king. He recognized. He saw something that they didn't see. He saw something that his dad didn't see, his brother didn't see, the king himself didn't see. And by now, Goliath can't see. Jonathan, the one you would expect the least to really welcome David, gives him his royal robe. You know, when you look at this situation and now you think, well, surely now he's going to step up to the plate and he's going to be king and all of Israel is going to rally behind him. Wrong. He goes into a period of 14 years of training to be king. And when I say training, I'm talking about trials and testings. Saul continued to lose his mind and decides he's got to track down David and kill him. David's hiding in caves. He's got a few loyal men that follow him. It's 14 years of this craziness. And he's being chased by the guy who was king, who the Spirit of the Lord has left, who is no longer anointed to be king. And I am anointed to be king. 
and I killed the Philistine. Fourteen years of boot camp. Developing godly, kingly character. There was nobody David could rely on but God. And remember, I said he wasn't perfect, and we usually think of the David and Bathsheba thing and all the immorality, but he made some mistakes along the way too. Shoot, he even goes and lives with the Philistines for a while. It's crazy. But even though he was doing all, he still had this heart of integrity towards God. And he was, God was building character in him. Even as he was living as a fugitive from Saul, he depended on God. After 14 years of training, he's finally ready to represent God and God's character. Remember, God gave a king. He gave them a king who would represent him, who would keep his people in a godly path so that the nation itself would stand out as unique among all the nations of the earth. They are God's chosen people. People would be drawn to them because they they could see that this is a blessed people and that their God must be the one true God. That's what God was looking for in a king. And Saul failed. And David's turn comes after 14 years. What Saul saw on the outside, what his dad and his brother saw on the outside, God saw something totally different. Saul looked good, but God knew his heart. And it led to destruction. David didn't look that good, but God saw his heart. And it led to becoming king. God, God could not stand for Saul to distort the image that he was representing of God himself. He wouldn't stand for it. And he brought in David to represent the nature and character of God. And this is what God wants from us. You and I may not stand directly before a nine and a half foot tall giant, but we all have a mission. Part of that mission is to point people to Jesus. God wants us to be like David in the sense that we should exhibit the character of God. We should exhibit the nature of God through the lives that we live. That's what he's calling us to do. What does this look like? We need to keep in mind, you know, what I've been talking about up to this point really was what was taking place in the lower story here in planet Earth. But all of what was taking place was really part of God's upper story. God's upper story, his primary goal is to do what? Bring his people back to himself. And boy, we look at this lower story and we think, what a mess that all was. Reality was God was in control, bringing people back to himself. How do we apply this story to our lives? Well, I want to throw out a couple of things. Number one is, wouldn't you all love to have a Jonathan in your life? Wouldn't you love to have that someone that sees you the way God sees you? I mean, most of us disqualify ourselves even as other people are disqualifying us. Who do you think you are? What can you ever do for the kingdom? Do you know what you did in your past? I know who you were. I know what you've done. And we come up with all these crazy thoughts of we're not good enough, fears, all these things. Boy, if we just find that Jonathan who comes alongside you and me and says, wow, I see what's inside of you. I see the person God has created you to be. 
I can see what God wants you to do with your life. Like Jonathan recognized David's anointing. Not only do we all need a Jonathan in our life, we all need to be a Jonathan in somebody else's life. It is so easy, especially in our culture. Everything's about appearance, right? You've got to look right, smell like, walk right, walk right, wear the right clothes, drive the right car, live in the right house, drink the right beer. You name it, you've got to do it right. We need to look in other people's lives. Encourage them. Pull their gifts out of them. Especially in our homes. Especially with our spouses. Especially with our children. We need to be Jonathans and we need a Jonathan. You know, like the older sister in my opening story, both David and Jesus too were underestimated by everybody else. Count on it. You're going to be underestimated. If you haven't been put down by people, you will be. If you haven't been disqualified by somebody, you will be. Count on it. It's just part of our training. And don't underestimate yourself. As we were singing those songs this morning and and as I, I saw that picture of Lazarus coming forth and being bound, I think so many of us, it's like we, we wrap the grave cloths around ourselves by disqualifying us because of our past or because of something that's happened, a trial or a test or a situation. Don't disqualify yourself. Don't believe what the world says about you. Discover who you are in Christ, His child, His son, His daughter, Loved unconditionally with a mission. What's my mission? You know, one thing about David, whatever was put before him, that was his mission. And whatever God put before him, he kept his eye on the ball and that's what he did. That's what we need to do. Don't get your eye off of where God has called you. You know what? If you're called to be working in a plant right now or in an office right now, man, do it to the glory of God. Do it with honesty and integrity, hearts of integrity. Represent Christ in the workplace. You're called to be a mother or a husband, or a wife. Do it to the best of your ability. If that's the mission God has before you right now, do it. Keep your eye focused. Don't start wishing and wondering and saying, what if? God will bring it to you. But whatever is before you, do it. There's a quote that I have no idea who said this, but it went like this. The most radical thing you can do, wouldn't you love to, I hope you'd love to be a radical Christian. Here's what he said. The most radical thing you can do is the very next thing God tells you to do. Isn't that profound? I want to do something radical for Jesus. Well, do the next thing he tells you to do. Maybe it's you're supposed to go over and give that person a hug and tell them Jesus loves you. That's pretty radical. Especially to the person who needs to hear those words. Maybe. Maybe. You can just fill that in. There's so many things. The most radical thing you can do is the very next thing God tells you to do. And whatever you do, represent God well. I want to close with this last question. When God reveals the next thing we're supposed to do it, what's God revealing to you? God's always revealing something to us. What's that next thing he's revealing to you? And if you're not sure you see it, ask him. Ask him. 
And sometimes we can go to a brother and sister in Christ and they might help us focus. Get radical. Do the next thing Jesus asks us to do. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us as your representatives, as ambassadors of Christ, to, to just sift through all of the distractions, all the tests, all the trials that come our way, and see what it is you would have us to do, what the mission is that you have before us at this moment in time. God, and I pray you would release grace to do that mission well, to bring you honor and glory. God, I pray and just submit even my own life before you, God, that we would be men and women of integrity, that we would be a people after your own heart. God, you know we're not perfect. Thank goodness that's not the prerequisite. But God, search our hearts. If there be any way in us that is not of you, reveal it to us. God, that we may truly represent Christ to the world around us. That people would want to know what it is that we know, what it is that we have, what the source of our hope is, what the, hope of our, the source of our joy is that we might be able to declare the truth that Jesus living in us is the hope of glory. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to process these things from the life of David and apply them to our own life. God, help us to see who it is you would like us to be a Jonathan to and bring our Jonathan across our paths that you'd be glorified in all of this. And Lord, now we ask that you would bless the food that we are about to eat and bless all those who have prepared it for us to eat, that it would nourish our bodies. And I pray that you would watch over us as we travel home today and, and every day. Go before us, lining up those divine appointments all week long. And God, we pray that we would truly minister love everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen.